Wow. Um, I've, you, you hear me say many times that there are, there, are, there are Sundays when you just feel like, you know, at about this point, we should just kind of call the service. We're done. Time for an altar call. Respond how God wants you to respond, and we're done. But if we did that every Sunday, you'd wonder why you have me on staff. So we're just... Uh, we're going to pretend like this, this part of it. And by the way, those of you who, who were here for the first service and you stayed just for that part of the second service, it's okay to get up and go now. You don't have to, you don't have to stay for that. Actually, no, there are some people who did that. It actually is okay to go now. You, uh, you're cool. Thank you very much, um, Greer family, um, for, for leading us that way. For um, Nanus, we talk about here how, since every member is a minister, when we talk about ministry, youth ministry or even children's ministry, much less family ministry, what we're talking about is not, not ministry imposed upon people or done to people, but ministry done by those populations. And so to get to see a family minister together, um, John's leadership, and then um, the Greer ladies leading us in that, <clears throat> just, a, just beautiful. So um, what a great way to get started. And there's a, when we engage with the issue that we're engaging with and have been over these last few weeks looking at the book of Ruth and of course coinciding that with the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ, um, which seems like a crazy concept. It, it really does. Like, how does this accomplish anything? Well, um, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about God's problem, and they mean the problem of evil or the problem of suffering or something like that. But let me tell you, the, the problem that God faced was a, a broken and rebellious and wandering and drifting population that he created with freedom who then chose to move away from him. And the problem he faced is how, given our freedom, how does he then restore us, redeem us? How does he accomplish that when we can't fix this problem for ourselves? And that's a, that's a great conversation to have and a, and a good way to come at um, what we're talking about. We ended, last week, we ended chapter three in the book of Ruth. We've done each of these chapters. Chapter three in the book of Ruth, um, really left with a little bit of a cliffhanger. So uh, we're going to have some different epic story connections today. One is the cliffhanger, and at the end we're going to have some uh, uh, post. We're going to have a little post credits uh, scene at the end for all you Marvel and now DC fans who do the post credit thing at the end. But we're gonna there's a, there's like a kind of an ending to the story, and then there's yet another little ending to the story, and so. And we're going we're gonna to look at that before we're done here. But <clears throat> so the cliffhanger was, we've all been rooting for Boaz. It looked obvious that Boaz was going to be the one to redeem Ruth. Um, and that's how this is going to play out. He was going to come in and rescue everybody. That's been the picture from chapter 2. And here at the end of chapter 3, we're left with this. Oh, by the way, there is another redeemer. There's someone who's even closer to this situation than I am legally now, I believe what has happened, my interpretation of what's happened on the threshing room floor is that Ruth has offered herself as a servant wife, uh, maybe a concubine, to Boaz, <coughs> and he has rejected this offer and has instead declared that he wants to marry her as a peer, <clears throat> as though she were a Jewish woman. And, and we talked about at one point the fact that Boaz is himself uh, only half Jewish, his mother was Rahab from the story and from the account of Jericho, the fall of Jericho. And so um, he seems to have some pretty powerful emotions and feelings about this. So Naomi ends chapter three for us by saying that everybody can relax because Boaz has this well in hand. He's going to take care of this matter. So we begin chapter four, verse one with, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, 
the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders and said, sit down here. So they sat down. It is fascinating to me to note with what authority Boaz speaks, even here in the city gates. Um, I'll just go ahead and warn you, I didn't quite make it all the way through the first service. My whole family was down with everything that everybody else was down with this last week, and I'm just recovering. So I made it through the service, but only I had to do like a, about a minute or so of having to actually take the mic off, and everybody got to enjoy sitting and watching me try to cough up an internal organ. But um, <clears throat> it turned out okay. Pray, be praying that I get through the whole thing, so we'll see. But city gates were a big deal in ancient times. This was, this was town square. This was city hall. This was where things happened. And so even today, you can go um, like to, um, to Megiddo. I think we got a shot a couple of these. Go to Megiddo, and you can see the city gates as they were. And, so they, and, then, and they would have had arches over them like this. There's still some, um, I think these are in Syria. And this area, the, so the ancient cities had these walls, and they had these city gates. And, and in front them, in them, uh, right behind them would have been when were commerce, important political decisions um, wedding decisions, marriages, and that kind of stuff very often would have taken place here. Um, they're important. And we see, by the way, the significance of them all through Scripture. Um, Genesis 19 tells us this is where Lot waited for guests. Um, Deuteronomy 21 tells us that this is where a judgment would take place before the elders. Esther 2, this is where a murder plot is hatched, is actually at the city gates, um, where all the different people involved in it come together. Proverbs 31, this is where important people would have worked and engaged in commerce. Um, and there's many others. <laughs> so this is, this is an important place. And Boaz has gone here. The elders of the city would have just kind of hung out there. And people would have come to them for decisions, um, to sign off on things, to witness things, all that kind of stuff. A place of commerce, judgment, meeting, etc. Now, that's what's going on. So Boaz goes and waits there knowing that this redeemer would come by. It is significant in a book that draws, that draws attention to names that this Redeemer, and I will do this every time I say that, <clears throat> goes unnamed. The closest thing we get to a name is the, is the Hebrew, the two Hebrew words that are used here that are translated into many of your Bibles as friend. That when Boaz says, now friend, come sit here. But friend really doesn't do this word justice. It's more, one commentary I read said, this is, this is the Hebrew name for John Doe. This is someone who is intentionally going unnamed. Now, it's possible that his name had been lost and they'd forgotten his name by the time this was written down, but that's not super likely. It's much more likely that this is an intentional little bit of a snub of this man. We'll talk about why before um, the sermon is over. But that, that this, this man is intentionally kind of being left out of the story by name. Um, again, theories, opinions as to why that is the case, we'll look at that. In your, in your, but in most of our translations, it will say friend. But Boaz thinks this is his shot. The best circumstance is to bring this man, to catch him in the middle of his daily work, have him sit, then to gather 10 elders. That's significant. It took 10 to witness almost anything like this, a marriage or whatever, a contract. So he has these 10 men sit there. And by the way, which, which means Boaz, the Redeemer, and 10 people. So we have a total of? 12 people here to make a court decision um, where we get that probably the same place we get the number um, to this day in court proceedings in America. So we have these 12 people here and he, he then lays this out for them. And obviously 12 was, the number 12 was a big deal to the Jewish people, obviously anyway. 
Um, so he says to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would just tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. <coughs> so Boaz brings him to the situation. He stops him in front of these till elders. He makes a big deal out of this. This might should have made this guy a little suspicious. Makes a big deal about it, sits them all down and says, Naomi, who, and again, the, the, she was the wife of Elimelech, who's dead. She was the mother of Malon and Kilion, who are both dead. And so there's not a male heir to inherit this property. So Naomi really can't work it. She probably doesn't have the money to hire people to work it. She probably didn't even have the money to, have to get seed to plant on it. So it looks like she's decided to sell it. Now, we don't know that from anybody except Boaz. Boaz is the only person who actually says this. But Boaz is doing all of this in such a way that there's no room for question. No back alley um, trades going on. No smoke-filled rooms where decisions are being made. No, you know, no under-the-table type of... Con this is straight up in front of everybody. He calls out this guy, and they're going to make this decision. And, it, and right now, it's all good news. Right? Some land, it's for sale, probably can get it cheap <coughs> from this widow who needs some provision. And so the guy says, well, then I'll redeem it. At this stage, he is living up to his namesake. He is the redeemer, and he's going to redeem it. Now, some think that, they, that one of the two commentaries referenced that they thought Naomi had, and, and Elimelech had maybe already sold this land and that Boaz and this guy are talking about buying it from the person who bought it. But, but I think the language that, that seems to be pretty clear here to me that this is really talking about the fact that <clears throat> Naomi herself is going to sell it. In a desperate situation, she needs to make enough money to survive a little bit longer. Um, and so this is, this is what we're going to do. Boaz only mentions the land. He mentions this land. The guy says he's going to buy it. Now, some of you will get this because he's then going to come back and do kind of a Columbo line here. Um, and he's going to say, now, wait, actually, there's, there's, there's one more thing I need to... There's like nine people in the room who are old enough to know the Columbo <laughs> reference. But to, to come back and say, like, okay, just actually, sorry, one, one more thing. If you don't mind, I've got one more little point to make here. And what he's going to do is he, he's going to take a second, because we're going to learn a little lesson about this man, the Redeemer. The Redeemer doesn't know the situation. This makes him very different from Boaz. Remember, Boaz has from moment one been businessman extraordinaire, almost a godfather type figure, right? He knows what's going on. This is his city. It's his business to know what's going on. He knows the whole story. He knows the situation. Um, when he meets Ruth, apparently on day one, he meets Ruth and he says, once he, he doesn't even know who she is. Once he hears, oh, that's Ruth, he tells her, I've already heard everything that you've done for your, um, your mother-in-law. So he, man, he's on top of things. Our Redeemer in this story does not. He's not aware of this situation. He plays out like clueless. So he doesn't seem to get it. Boaz tells him, hey, you want to get this land? Probably cheap, really no strings attached. And the guy's like, sure, I'll redeem that. No big deal. And Boaz says, oh, well, actually, sorry, by the way, there's, there's another part you probably ought to know about. Um, uh, in verse 5, Boaz says, um, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead 
in his inheritance. So, by the way, I forgot to mention, there's an old bitter woman and a foreign girl, and you probably ought to marry one of them, and it probably needs to be the foreign girl, and then you're going to need to give her a son. The Leverite law was created by God to protect families. And we only see it enacted a couple of times in the Bible. The Leverite law, Leverite, the, the, that word Levir, meaning, literally meaning brother-in-law, my husband's brother, was set up so that a, a family would not be stuck without any provision. So let's say I had a brother. I don't, but let's say I had a brother and I had no sons. I do, but we'll pretend like I don't have those either. And I die, my wife would be in trouble because she really has no provision for taking care of herself. No life insurance, especially if her family is dead. And so, <clears throat> so she's in trouble. Now, my brother would have the responsibility, according to Leverite law, the brother-in-law law, that he would, he would need to come and marry her and to give her a son. Now, this is strange by our standards, but that's how it was done, to protect her. And then it was also meant to protect me, the dead man, because they would have a son, and that son would be legally my child, the child of the dead man. And so, now here's the problem, though. The brother just took on a, another mouth to feed. And then if she has children, multiple mouths to feed that he's now responsible for. In addition to whoever else he has in his family already, he's now responsible for her, any children they have. And not only is he responsible for her, but he may have to purchase the property, like this guy. So he's got to spend money to get the property. He's then got to spend money to take care of these people. And then in the end, if this woman has a son, he doesn't get anything for it. Because the son is going to inherit all that property. And so he just has, has really risked a lot in order to gain, in the end, financially gain nothing. We see this problem in the story of Onan in the Bible. Onan is, is held responsible for a lot of things. The only thing he is responsible for is refusing to give his brother's wife a son. That's, all he, that's, what, that's what he actually does. Is he breaks God's law in regards to this. He refuses to give his brother's wife, his dead brother's wife, a son. So God kills him. <clears throat> that's how seriously God takes this. This is the responsibility. Now, this is all stuff that should have been happening anyway. The family should have been taking care of each other. This shouldn't have been an issue. The Leverite law should never have been necessary. Of course, the whole family is going to take care of her. Of course, people are going to step in and take But they weren't doing it all over this region. And so God enacts this law to protect her. She is now protected because she's going to have this son. And we talked a little about that last week. That's what's going on. You can imagine that our, quote, redeemer who had not accounted for all of that, all he heard was, hey, cheap property. Now he hears cheap property, but at least two women who he's going to have to take into his household. He doesn't even know these women. He knows, apparently knows nothing about all of this. He's going to have to give one of them a son. He doesn't know if he wants to do that or not. And he's legally and morally before God responsible to do it. And he's probably already married. So you can imagine, this could create a really awkward situation. Where a guy's going to go home and say, Hey, um, honey, good news, I got us some property. And I got you a friend. 
there's no indication. When we see the people in the Bible who have more than one wife, um, that, which was never part of God's design. His design was one man and one woman. And we see that in Genesis very clearly. But he creates a provision where somehow that actually could happen. We see that happen a few times in the Bible. <coughs> so, so here you have a situation where God's design, his purpose can be fulfilled this way, even though it goes against his design. There could be provision for these people, whatever. But does it, when you look at the biblical accounts where you have a man who has more than one wife, does it typically go well? No, it does not. The women don't get along at all. Jacob's two wives have a, have a habit of naming their children names that are clearly insults at the other woman. So one woman who can't have a child, the other woman has children, and she names them things like, see, I can have a child and you can't. <laughs> not kidding. Those are the types of things they name their children. I mean, this, is a, this, is, this does not go well. Um, that's, a, that's an important thing to keep in mind. It is not honored, even though it is um, revealed, it is shown. That's what's going on here. This man goes, well, <laughs> um, here's what he says. Verse 6, then the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. You take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Right there, three different times in this passage. I want to take a second and talk about, maybe that's why this guy goes without being named or being more honored. <clears throat> Did you do something wrong here? Well, not legally. But here's the problem. There's an identity statement here. What has he been called throughout the whole passage? Redeemer. What does he do? He does not redeem. This is an identity quandary. This is this guy's job, maybe, his responsibility, maybe. But I think the biblical picture is this is this guy's opportunity. God has given him the opportunity to be a redeemer. And he decides not to do it. He's got more important things than this. Now again, we're all happy because it means Boaz gets to, do, gets to be the redeemer, which is what we've been cheering for. But this guy kind of gets a little bit of a, of a tough thing. His title is redeemer. He's a redeemer who doesn't redeem. If you're ever in church, especially if you're in this church, and what you hear feels like or sounds like behavioral modification, understand that's not intended. It's never intended. Anytime you hear something, you go like, oh, I better start behaving this way so I can become this. That's not what's meant. We, we don't believe that. We don't have that in us. We don't behave in a righteous way so we can become righteous. You don't do good things to become more righteous. You're never going to impress God with righteousness. If that's your plan, give up on that. You, you have no chance of it. <laughs> you, don't, you don't behave in a pure way to become pure. If that's your goal, forget it. You have no shot. Human beings don't manufacture righteousness. We don't, we don't grunt out purity. We don't make that stuff happen. It is bestowed or it doesn't happen. Just like this, our identity comes first. We are called something and then we live it out. That's how it's supposed to happen. We say, this is, this is who I am Therefore, I live this way, not the other direction. We don't behave married until we're married. That an easy one? We don't behave a certain way until it's true. We should live this out 
because something is true. This is the biblical picture, and I know in many, many cases, you were raised like I was in a church that had this behavioral modification. You were to behave a certain way in order to make something true. It's a lie. It's not going to happen. You accept the truth that God has bestowed upon you. And I think part of what's going on here with this reading, and this is going to be a theme in the new year for the first for January. We're going to be looking in January um, at the character of Gideon, the one judge who we left out. Talking about identity in the midst of it, Paul and I are going to team teach at least one of those Sundays where we talk about that. And then, by the way, from that was part of the inspiration of after January, we're going to study the book of John, maybe forever. I mean, I've I've planned at least through the fall. Um, It's going to take, and it's going to be, there's going to be one identity concept after another hammered through that book that I I hope that we all continue to get. Look at these. Notice the order. Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be worthy of what you have. Your manner of life is not going to create the gospel of Christ. It's already been given. Now, live according to that. <coughs> Colossians 3.1-4, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. If you've been raised with Christ, <coughs> seek the things that are above. If you have not been raised in Christ, you need to be raised with Christ. Then seek the things that are above. That's how that works. Identity first. The Redeemer is not living according to the truth of who he is, perhaps. This was a line from one of the rabbis, um, especially with Old Testament stuff, especially ones like this. It's fun to read the rabbis. I, I, as, as I was told when I was in Israel, if you, get, if, you have two rabbis, if you have two rabbis together, you're going to have at least three opinions on everything that you talk about. But here's, here's a, Rabbi Levine says, the redemption, this is, listen to this phrase. I want to let this phrase soak into you. This one hit me as one of the saddest things I've read in a long time. He described the Redeemer as representing, quote, the redemption that almost happened, except that it did not. That, I wasn't expecting to be impacted by this Redeemer character in this chapter. Um, But but that's, that's what struck me. This is, catch, this guy had the opportunity to redeem Ruth and Naomi, except he didn't. He had the opportunity, spoiler alert here, he had the opportunity to be in the line of King David, except he didn't. He had the opportunity to be in the line of Solomon, except he didn't. He had the opportunity to be in the line of Mary and Joseph, a couple from Nazareth who came to Bethlehem, except he didn't. He had the opportunity to be in the line of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, except he didn't. Now, I don't mean to take God out of that picture, but there's a powerful idea here that this guy was a redeemer, except he wasn't. Boaz, on the other hand, does not miss this. This is the reasonable response to the reasonable call by a reasonable God to let ourselves be embraced, purchased, um, loved, and redeemed by a God who is solving our problem. Boaz doesn't miss it. Um, so he does the taking of a sandal, which we talked about last week. Sandals and feet are a big deal in the Middle East. Um, they still are to this day. It was um, one of the mistakes that, that um, soldiers made in the recent um, conflicts and ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and others was to ride with their feet hanging out of the helicopters because none of them knew that to show the bottom of your feet is a huge insult. And so American soldiers were riding in helicopters, literally insulting all the people under them. And that's how, they were, that's how the, the people in the cities were taking it. Probably would have saved us a lot of trouble if someone had done a little research on that. 
Feet are a big deal there. They still are. Remember, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Like that's the sign of the ultimate lowest servant is they're the one that wash feet. Feet are in the Middle East. And if you've ever been over there, everything is sand and dirt and, and except for where animals have walked and then it's worse. And so you got to, you know, the, the idea of doing that, that's part of where that comes from. Throwing shoes. Remember how they throw shoes, that kind of stuff. You've seen that sometimes. And all of that is connected to this. <clears throat> the awkwardness that we talked about the ceremony, the chalitza ceremony, the removal of the shoe. They still do it. Some people in Israel still practice this, by the way. The Leverite laws are not ignored still in Israel. They're not, they're, they're not ignored. They're just, they choose the different one. In this case, what happens is they take a sandal, and the sandal is an indication in front of these elders. Hey, I'm going to do this. I'm purchasing her. I'm going to redeem her. Boaz says, I'm going to do it. He takes a sandal from the other man. I guess later, so that if somebody asks any questions, like, did that really happen? Boy, I was going to be like, listen, I got the man's sandal. I got the sandal to prove it. Plus all these witnesses. I love this. This is just beautiful. The deal is sealed. Then, the, before this poor guy, the redeemer, knows what's going on. He's literally shown up. He's been asked a couple of questions. Oh, no. He, like, what are all, what's with all the elders? There's a crowd gathering. What's really going on here? It's done before he can respond at all. It's done. Boaz then says to the elders and all the people, so you should picture, I picture him standing on something. Getting everybody's attention. Hey, everybody up here. I, I want to make an announcement. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Kilion and Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. <clears throat> to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance so that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. These gates, these very gates. Think about the fact that there would have been people years later that when King David came back home for the first time, you'd have had people saying like, you know what? I was there. I was there that day Boaz claimed. Or my dad used to always tell me about the day that Boaz claimed Ruth in front of everyone. These gates have been honored by this. It's, a, it's a, such a great picture. They agree, by the way, that they are witnesses. They bless the family. Essentially, they break into song um, here, which is kind of a cool. Those are here in the musicals and stuff. Like, There's probably a choreographed dance number that they all go into, and they all break into song. Um, he asks, and they ask God to bless the family, to be like the house of Rachel and Leah, which had a whole bunch of children, to be like the house of Perez, um, which had a whole bunch of children. We're going to reference them again in a second. Um, this is a, they were, and, and by the way, but this is what's so funny. Talk about the anticlimactic. So you get all this, it builds up to this moment. This is the moment that really matters. And you get one verse. Oh, by the way, they got married, got pregnant and had a son. I guess that's kind of it. So <clears throat> almost the end. It's one, it's one little verse. The women of the community who get all stirred up, the women say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you on this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you the restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. That's a huge compliment. <clears throat> so think about this. Ruth, I mean, uh, Boaz stands up in front of everybody. Take just a second, um, men, and, and comment on something. I try to, because this story is largely a story about romantic relationships and, and husband and wife relationships and stuff, this is another good teachable moment. This one is years ago, a friend of mine um, who was a pastor, <coughs> he was at the IT department at Pine Cove. Sorry about that. Uh, the IT department at Pine Cove, and he and I would sit and talk pastor stuff um, before I was a pastor, just, just to get his wisdom. 
And he told me one day, he said, you know, my wife and I had a conversation recently where I asked her, hey, do I do a good job? Do I, do I ever do a bad job of respecting you or honoring you publicly? Sometimes pastors, they get up on stage and they start talking about stuff. If they're not careful, they end up creating a situation where they're, they're kind of using their wife as a bad example of things in a sermon. He asked his wife, do I ever do that? She said, no, you really don't, which he was relieved to hear that. Then he said, well, let me ask you this then. Do I go out of my way to honor you when I speak and when I teach? To go out of my way to, to show respect to you and how much I love you? And he said her response was, no, you really don't do that either. <clears throat> this, this yet again, Boaz example to us, who publicly, proudly claims this woman in front of his community. I mean, this is... This is I mean, you get, you get a, you know, we get, we get commercials where a guy just says, I love you to his wife on the phone and a giant beer can falls out of the sky and squashes him, right? I mean, he's going to be ridiculed by his buddies. He doesn't care. This is a man of great power, of great influence. His role in the community is huge. And yet he doesn't care if he looks foolish in this moment. He wants everyone to know how proud he is to get to be the redeemer in this family. Is that what people see in our lives. Do they see us men? Do we see us honor our wives? Do they see us verbalize that? Do our children overhear us talk that way? Do we, do we do that in a public way to honor the women in our lives like Boaz does? This is, this is a huge opportunity for him. So it's, it's great to see this played out biblically for us as another example. As he does this, he's proud of it. Um, and so she, sure enough, she has this child, they name the child Obed. And Obed gets to be, um, he, he comes, they, they bring Obed to Naomi and she nurses him. Now, you may have been taught like I was that, that that's a miracle, that literally she breastfeeds him. Um, the language probably really doesn't support that. It, it doesn't change the significance of the passage in my mind, um, except for one, and I've even taught that in the past, I was taught that. Um, it, it doesn't really change the significance of this though. Um, let me tell you. So I, I tell you, I've told you regularly that you know, Paul and John and I talk about the sermons a lot of times on Tuesday mornings, and Paul had looked up some of this stuff. And, but here's, here's what really struck me. What struck me was, if there was a miracle here, it might cause us to diminish our role as grandparents. To think like, oh, there'd need to be some kind of miracle for this. And let me just tell you, many, many people in the room, I suspect that if I said, what, do, do, is there a grandparent who played a significant role in your upbringing or he played a significant role in bringing you to Christ or whatever. I'll bet a bunch of you would say yes. I would. Um, my, my grandparents, my, especially my grandmother, was a source of, of comfort and sanity and encouragement. Um, she was very uplifting to me. And this is a powerful ministry that we don't ever want to minimize. It's, see, grandparents are, hopefully they're at a stage in their Christian life where they don't constantly need to be, uh, get a pat on the head. and like They get to just minister to this family. They get to minister to these children. Um, they get to come alongside mom and dad and others. It's a powerful thing. It's one of the reasons why a lot of times Sundays like this, although there's quite a few people here, a lot of times Sundays like this for us are low attendance Sundays because, because we have so many young families that they go visit mom and mom's not here. Mom's someplace else. And I'm aside from all the sickness, because we also have a lot of germ-ridden children running around here. But the, the, this opportunity for us to be grandparents in the lives of our kids and other people's kids, by the way. Um, surrogate grandparents are very, very powerful things. So 
I want to take a second and comment on, um, as we see this played out and how we've seen this played out, we have seen hope played out. So the Advent, again, hopefully you've got the creativity that even though I've not made the connections overtly over and over again, you've been able to spot the connection between the Advent of Jesus Christ coming and the role that Boaz has played as a redeemer. This whole story is really our story. Paul has referenced it this morning. Um, you've heard it a few times here. The Redeemer has come and is coming back. Our, we get to see the, the fulfillment of this story, the, the epic story that we're a part of. The final act plays out in the future. Um, he has not forgotten us. That's, that's something where we can find great peace. Great peace in knowing that even though we don't know the plan, even if we don't have all the answers... We know the one who has the plan. We know the one who wrote the plan. Um, the planner, knowing the planner is in many ways more important than knowing the plan, right? That we can have joy. Now, joy requires patience, <clears throat> but that we can live in this joy. We can rest in the character of a God who will reconcile us fully, who has redeemed us from the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. And the belief he is coming back. And the mindset of hope and peace and joy. Um, we're going to take communion um, together. We're going to come to the Lord's table. Um, for those who are Christ followers, we invite you to do this. So I'm going to have Paul come up and, and take over some of this um, during this time. But I want you to be thinking in terms of this Advent. This God who came. And that that's part of what we're remembering is that he came. And part of what we're remembering is that he's coming back. And then we'll do our... our uh, after the um, credits scene here at the end. So, Paul. Thank you, Paul. <clears throat> so the post credit scene, those of you who stayed through the credits, the post credit scene is a romance scene. It's a love scene. You don't normally experience that um, in those situations. Because see, in the end, um, you know, one of the great things about Facebook, for, especially for someone with a memory like mine, meaning not much of one, um, they, they give you that at the end of a year. You know, hey, this happened a year ago. Well, about a year ago, um, in one of our services during the lighting of the love, the candle, apparently a child, I don't remember this, but I wrote it down because it stood out to me then and again seeing it. A child said this about Christmas. Christmas is not about what we love, but about who loves us. That is truth. That is a powerful truth that this, this time is not about who we love, but the truth is it's a celebration of who loves us, so that when we come with so little, bitter, broken, empty, whatever we, little we bring to the table, and most of it's not very exciting, that God restores. God is a God of claiming. Uh, one of the things I, I love is when I get to see husbands and wives proudly kind of claim each other publicly. Um, I, I think about that. One of the things that, that drew me to Ginger early on, and you'll see this if you sit over anywhere, but she sit, we sit together every chance we get. And you don't get to do that much as an adult, by the way. You ever notice that? You don't get to sit next to each other a lot as adults. And so we sit next to each other, and if I lean forward for any reason, she's going to put her hand over on my back because she loves to claim me, and, which is amazing if you know me. I mean, it's just it's unthinkable. It's a, it is a miracle. The idea of publicly being claimed is huge. And God has publicly declared his desire for you, to claim you, to have you. In this account, we get to see through the individual story, Naomi, Ruth, 
Bethlehem, Moab, Lot, Abraham, Israel, the human race, the picture of claiming. Through the advent, through the coming of Jesus Christ here, we see God saying, yes, you've got this problem. Yes, you are rebellious. Yes, you are sinners. Yes, you have done all this. But you know what? I, I desire you in the midst of that. I claim you. I purchase you. So and my encouragement as we are here at this time, and, and if you come back today at 4.30 as we finish up, really honestly finish up kind of this story in the last, just a few minutes this, this, evening, this afternoon, that we would let our hard hearts soften, that we would come to him not arrogantly, not proudly, not demanding, but recognizing that if there is a God, he is God. And therefore, he would love, this God would love to restore our hope. Our hope for what? I don't know where your hope is broken. Maybe your, your hope for a great marriage or for a family or for a friendship or for a relationship or for whatever, maybe that's been broken that you would let him restore your hope for that, that you would let him restore the peace where your peace is broken, that you would let him restore the joy of your salvation, that you would hear singing like we got to hear this morning, that you would get to hear about the power of Scripture and have your salvation, the joy of that be restored. We are flawed creatures. So, of course, our seasons, our moods, our whatever, we go up and down in our relationship to him. But his relationship to us is one of reconciliation. He restores. He redeems. The cup The cup that we drink, if you come to Passover in a few months, the cup that we drink is the cup of redemption. That's the one I believe Jesus is drinking when he does this. It is the cup of proclaiming he has redeemed us. He has chosen us. Ruth was listening this whole time. We get to see Ruth learn and grow and come to understand a God who there's no way she knew before. She gets to know the God because she gets to know Boaz and she gets to know Naomi. But are we listening? God's grace is for everyone. The tragedy is turned into an epic comedy with a twist. Here's your post-credit screen um, <coughs> scene. The women of the neighborhood came, gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He is the father. He was the father of Jesse. Who was the father of David? This isn't just some cute romance story. This is a story of redemption and the creation of a royal family. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Obed, the seventh son, comment. Obed is the seventh son from Perez. He is better, better than seven Boaz was better than seven sons. Ruth was better than seven sons. In that she brings this, this joy into Naomi's life. Boaz, by grace. Ruth, by grace. Naomi, against her bitterness, by grace. He redeems people by his grace. Grace is kind of like love plus peace plus joy plus hope. Is grace. David's, it's for everybody. His grace is for everybody. David's, David's grandparents were a total of one quarter Jewish. Boaz being the son of a Jewish man and... A, a, Jer- a woman from Jericho, whatever they're called. A Moabite on the other side. Adoption is the gospel. We are all, he, isn't, he wants us, he purchases us, he gets us. We all have a day, hopefully, when we, are, we recognize that we are wanted and he buys us, purchases us. All those little ancestors of the little figurines, all from this line. Little figurines in the little stable on your little table. Everybody but maybe the wise men. Um, certainly Mary and Joseph and Jesus are descendants of this story in line and 
in purpose. So, have you been redeemed? Have you allowed God to freely choose you by being chosen by him and redeemed by him? And then, for those of us who have been redeemed, do we live as little our redeemers, or have we missed that? Are we redeemers in name only? <coughs> Don't let that happen. Let us be redemptive in our lives, in every aspect, that we would live that out according to the truth of who he has made us. And where we have failed, that we own it, and we can live it out. So pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for these men and women who have chosen to come on an important day every year. <coughs> we have people who have expectations of us on days like today, and Lord, that we would take our time, that we would take the opportunity to risk um, getting sick, to risk the cold, to risk whatever to come, to worship you on this day. Lord, I thank you for that opportunity. I pray, Lord, that however you would have us respond, that we will. And we are so grateful for the work of your magnificent son who came to purchase us from that empty way of life. I thank you that he did so, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.